May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear, O Lord. Receive our praises and our adoration this morning as we proclaim your word to your people. Amen. Be seated. I'm going to ask that you would open again to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 13 will do. Yeah, I've had a residual cough from a cold or something that I had a couple of weeks ago. The cough, you know, it just hangs around. It's been better, but uh, excuse me for now and then having to uh, vent. (laughs) I do have some water here, which helps. That water is, I think, three weeks old. <clears throat> can tell. <laughs> I'm kidding. Don't everybody rush and get the water. That's usually what happens. Um, <clears throat> a couple of words uh, to you this morning. <clears throat> I want to say three words to you this morning before I begin. Sufficiency of Scripture. And you know what that is. The sufficiency of Scripture. It's the great doctrine of our faith that pertains to all of life. The Christian isn't just somebody who's saved by grace, although that's what he is. He's somebody who loves the Word of God. He has received a love of the Word, because in the Word is the very presence of Jesus Christ himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Um, So the sufficiency of Scripture, it's we go to the Scriptures to determine how we should live as God's people. And so when you come to a book like Romans, and I've been on this for almost two years now, we started at the beginning of Romans, and Paul gives us, because he's a very orderly teacher, he gives us the doctrine first, right? Um, he tells us what things are true, and therefore these are the things which we believe. But because we believe these things, we live in such and such a way, and that part's called the application. But somewhere in there is the realization that to, to, to live rightly before God, you had to have properly ingested and understood the theory, if you will. Theory and practice, we would say, if it was a secular discipline we were talking about. But it's really faith and application. Exposition of the word and application of the word. And so when the apostle writes a great epistle like this one, but presumed by many to be the greatest, one of the greatest works of literature of all time, he spends the, uh, the balance of the first part of it, the greatest part of it, talking about the understanding and the doctrine, the things that we will apply later when he gives us the application. And so it can't always be specifically about salvation. In fact, the application will only make sense to the person who has already been saved by faith in Christ. You see what I mean? The word of God is for the people of God, 
And until a work of God is done in someone else, he really has none other than just a purely intellectual access to it. And I've known many people in my life, in my academic life in particular, who had an academic approach to scripture and never went beyond that in their lives. You know? So we're in a section like that. It's important that while we're still in the world, though we're saved out of the world, we have to live here. And there's certain things we can't dispense with while we're here. One of them is each other. We need each other. And I'm talking about the Christian church, but I'm also talking about the unbeliever. Friends, we wouldn't last long without all the competent unbelievers in society. So quit calling down God's fire upon everybody you disagree with, because you may find that we need them if God keeps us here. And that's what this is about. Paul is teaching us that now that we're saved, we still have to live in civil society, and civil society is full of unbelievers. But somehow, in God's grace, he's still given the knowledge of right and wrong. And of the importance of due process of law, the importance of governments and governors. And so if you were saved in the city of Rome at that time, you wouldn't be having prayer meetings about getting Christians into office because that isn't how you got into office. You follow what I'm saying? If you were saved in Ephesus at the time, there was a prevailing government there already. We saw that. Paul had great trouble with that because he tried to, he was preaching the word of God in a, in a city that had a great obelisk to their god, their goddess Artemis, if you remember Diana of the Ephesians, right? So we still have to live in this society, so it's still important that we learn how to do that. <clears throat> and what Paul is telling us is because of the common grace of God, he's poured out that wisdom even upon secular governments, even upon the unbeliever. He's writing, Paul's writing to Romans. These people are in Rome. That's where Caesar was, the very man who would take Paul's head from him not many years from the time of this writing. So let's go into it again with that in mind, the sufficiency of Scripture, friends. We live out, our, the, we live out the Scriptures in the totality of life. You know, we don't just live for God on Sunday or during prayer meeting. We live for God in our workplaces. We live for God on the sidewalk. We live for God in public transport, right? We live for God always in our homes, in our families. And we live for God in our understanding of human government and recognizing that it is a gift from God. As cynical as we like to be about it from time to time, and forgive me, I am one of the worst cynics on that, But um, I'm always wary of the fact that God is the author of human governments, and he does demand that we respect them as such. And so he writes, uh, Let every soul be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Then do what is good, and, do, and you will have praise 
from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And Father, we ask that you would add your presence and power of the Holy Spirit to the reading and proclamation of this, your holy word, in the house of God this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you're a literate person, it's really self-explanatory, what he just said. But there are implications about these things that we'll look into. So he begins, let every soul be subject to governing authorities. Isn't it interesting that he didn't break that down and he said, to the good governing authorities or to the Christian governing authorities? There weren't any Christian governing authorities at that time. Uh, for there is no authority except from God. In other, in other words, whether we ever do get Christian um, authorities or not, the ones that are there are still the ones appointed by God. And that's a point of sovereignty, which I'll begin with today. We'll get down into the very basics of this. There's no authority except from God, and the ones that exist are appointed by him, essentially, is the message. So a first point of interest that the believer has to come to terms with is that God is the supreme authority. I don't think anyone will object to that. I'm preaching to the choir when I say something like that. <clears throat> That's a simple concept for most of us. We've been around a while. Even if you're new in the faith, it's not a difficult concept to say, you know, God is sovereign. Things that happen, happen because God ordained them to happen. And we give us the, ourselves this little avenue sometimes because it's hard for us to reconcile things. And we don't say that he ordained them. We say, well, he allowed them. It really amounts to the same thing if you're very careful in understanding how things work. But God is in control. That's not a problem, right? That's really what Paul is saying. After telling us for 12 chapters now uh, the mechanics of salvation, the things that went on in the heavenly places in Christ to, to make you a saved person before him, a receptacle of the Holy Spirit, cleansing your body, being sanctified of all sin, Right? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus to accomplish all these things. He taught us these things for 12 chapters. And now he's telling us you still you have to be a good citizen to be a good Christian. And the reason you have to be is God, whether they recognize him or not, he knows he's sovereign over them. The world doesn't know that. That's their shaking the fist at God thing that we're seeing so much today in media and politics. God is the God of the unbeliever. Even the ones that hate him, he's their God. So he's in control. He is sovereign. Nothing comes about that escapes his gaze, right? Nothing comes about apart from his notice or apart from his will. That's the very definition of sovereignty. That's what it means. Now, our Baptist confession, which we love very much, so I always list it before the Westminster, unlike everyone else who does it the other way, 
Um, There's no area of existence that was not sovereignly ordained by God. And so the, the confession, the great confessions read, God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things which shall ever come to pass. God doesn't counsel with anyone but himself. He, he takes advice from the Holy Spirit or the Son, but not from anyone else. And really, they're always in agreement, so it's, um, it's kind of a one-way thing, sovereignty. You know, you might not like that the sky is blue, but whatever happens in life, it's still going to be blue. You can call it whatever you want. The sky is blue and God is sovereign, and that's just the way it is. <clears throat> and essentially, I'm going to show you this this morning. Everyone really knows that. It's not a secret. You know, I don't have to whisper it. <laughs> the statement is based on various texts, not the least of which is Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, which says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Who else can do such a thing? Declaring from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. That's sovereignty. So friends, the appointing of civil government by God is the prerogative of God. It's a sovereign decision, sovereignly reached in the council of heaven. If governments could be said to come into existence apart from his ordination, then we would have to presume that he's not sovereign over all things. Governments snuck in there apart from his notice. How did that happen? That would be a real chink in the armor of sovereignty, wouldn't it? He is, in fact, not sovereign if that's the case. Some people will say, oh, that's an evil government. God would have nothing to do with it. Well, in the overriding umbrella of sovereignty, yes, he would. It didn't escape his notice. He wasn't on break. We should also, <laughs> I won't make a joke about that. We should also recognize that total sovereignty is essential to any basic theology that recognizes one overriding deity. If there's one deity, the whole concept of deity is that he is in charge of things, right? In other words, to say that God is not sovereign is to say that God is not God. And some would love to push that premise. To say that God is not God would be the first premise of atheism. He is either God or he's not. And if he's not, then the scriptures are an untrustworthy guide into his nature and purpose. Friends, if we decide today that God is not God, we really don't need the scriptures other than for entertainment. Right? Some sections are entertainment and some bring us to tears and it would just be like a happy or sad novel, you know. But no, it's not that. It's so much more than that because we know God is God and this is his word. So if God is God and God is sovereign, then he is the God he reveals himself to be in the scriptures, right? 
And so he may say of himself things like this, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, if you don't know what that means, Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. All right? I'm the Alpha and the Omega. In other words, anything that can be expressed in words are held in between my nature, my beginning and my end. I'm the beginning and I'm the end. He who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty, that's my name. So I'm quite certain that there will be few or none among us who would quibble with these declarations or with the definition of sovereignty. If a thing exists, then it is ordained by God. It's really that simple, isn't it? And humans are no exception. And so human government is also no exception. Governments didn't sneak in unnoticed. But I think we must offer some obvious explanations as to how governments, which is the gift of God, can and do go so horribly awry. Right? If they're of God, why are they so corrupt? I mean, we used to have to look around at other governments for that. We see it quite readily on our own these days. And it was always there. I don't mean to idealize certain times of American history when everybody loved each other and was together. There was always this st- political strife. It was always there. Heck, we had a war with each other. <clears throat> so if a thing exists, it's ordained by God, and humans are no exception, and governments are no exception. But they still go wrong. They still get corrupt. There's not a government on earth that has not overstepped God's moral parameters in some way. So that puts the Christian in a hard place. We're sitting here knowing right from wrong. It's burned into our souls by the Holy Spirit. We see a government go wrong. We see them do things they shouldn't do. And we're told we still have to offer them honor because they're God's appointed man or office, right? And we still have to fund them through our taxes as much as we know we're funding something that isn't right in God's sight. And this is how contorted this gets. And that's why this tends to be a thorny subject for us. But don't you think when Paul wrote this to the Romans that they were all struggling with that very thing? After the first 12 chapters, I would have thought people might come to the conclusion, you know, we have to oppose Rome like the Jews did in the, in the uh, last century with the Maccabees, the Hasmonean dynasty. They overthrew their Syrian overlords, right? But I think that's one of the reasons Paul wrote this is because we're not the theocracy of Israel anymore. That part of the Old Testament is fulfilled. We're in a new age, and people are going to be saved in different places with different governments, with different moral parameters all over the world, And yet all of those governments are ordained by God. And this is a wildly uh, inclusive subject. And yet he writes it so simply in these few words. And so Christians have had to grapple with these words of Paul since the inception of Christianity in the earth. Jesus himself had to grapple with this with Pilate, right? He had to go to human courts, which were, friends, kangaroo courts, and he was finally, when they all found him innocent, they called out the mob. They went on Facebook, they got everybody together in, in Pilate's praetorium, and they said, call out for Barabbas. Right? 
And so they won the day. The mob won the day, as it generally tends to do. So a first point to grapple with is the fact that though God appointed not only the governments of the world, but the governors themselves, that he did so knowing in what ways they would fail and in what ways they would become corrupt. So he knew that too, right? He knew the governors that he appointed would fail. They would become tyrants. And so my first point today is that there are two kinds of authority. And this is the very basic thing in just this, and this will help you through all of life. All right? There are perfect authorities and imperfect authorities. All right? And history is the story of the triumphs and failures of the imperfect governments of men. That's what history is about. It's about the failures and triumphs of imperfect authorities. Right? I like that definition. God is the ultimate authority, so he's perfect. God is the perfect, he's the only perfect authority. That's another attribute of sovereignty. There can be no other perfect authority. If there was, God would have to have counsel. He'd have to take advice. It's unthinkable to think of God taking advice. You ever notice when Jesus is walking with the disciples? He, he, like Jesus never said this statement. He never said, oh, say anything you want. There are no stupid questions. With Jesus, there was a lot of stupid questions. People said things and he'd say, what a stupid question. You have little faith. I, will there be any faith when I come back? No, he wasn't this politically correct little ruler trying to massage our general consciences all the time. He was God. That's why he didn't do those things that we do. All right, so in the wisdom of God and for purposes of his own, he appointed governments with imperfect rulers. Sounds strange, but the first government of man was the human family, right? Wouldn't that be considered the first government of man? We find that in many places in Scripture, uh, Paul or whoever's talking, Peter, tells us the hierarchy of authority within the human family. It's a government. And since the fall, there was a God-ordained hierarchy and authority. Remember? Your husband shall rule over you. Remember that one? The man, though imperfect, just as much a sinner as the woman, right? is the indisputable head of household. Now, God, look, we know Eve knew Adam was imperfect. She knew she could easily deceive him. But God knew it too, yet he still put the man over the woman. Knowing he was imperfect, knowing he would make more wrong decisions, and knowing all his offspring would be sinners who would multiply those wrong decisions, but yet God in his sovereignty decided to do this. And it's what we're left with. So the man, though imperfect, is the indisputable head of household, and women down through the ages have been the first to point that out, to point out the imperfections of the indisputable head of household. Your wife ever say that to you guys? You know, you're not perfect. And the children are subservient to both. That's how it's supposed to work. Friends, I watch people in the stores today when the kids are in charge. The kids are in charge. It's an it's a ugly thing to me. It's a terrible thing to watch something that big tell a 200-pound man what he's going to do. It's like, oh, honey, I'm just trying to explain things to you. It's like, 
I'm the man. I'm the indisputable head of household. And you're going to do what I say, not vice versa. We should have got that right in society, and we really let that go. And I'm going to show you the, <clears throat> the outworking of that somewhat. The children are subservient to both, or should be. And so we have this very rudimentary but imperfect example of government among men. So it seems to me from what we have said that the downfall of all the other authorities began with the imperfect expression of authority in the human family. You think I can make that sweeping statement? In other words, friends, civil governments cannot righteously emanate from an unrighteous pool of resources. Right? We only have one resource. The kids we raised who are eventually going to lead us. These college kids on the street calling for the destruction of a people and still trying to escape the handle of being anti-Semitic are going to be our leaders someday, supposedly, because they're the intellectual elite who could send them to elite colleges so they could come out dumber than they are going in. And we really think society's going to get better? Maybe we can just pray government better when we're feeding it with the unrighteous fodder of the failure of the most elemental government God created, the human family? In other words, civil governments cannot righteously emanate from an unrighteous pool of resources. If the family breaks down and becomes corrupt, it is hardly a logical presumption to hold that governments will become righteous in and of themselves. Where's the righteousness going to come from? If the governors coming in aren't already, don't already have a righteous code of ethics. Where's it going to come from? Now, one 19th century teaching on the nature and importance of the human family made this observation. I had to pull this book off the shelf. Andrew bought it for me many years ago. I opened it up as a long inscription. The, the Belli family gave this book on the family to me by a couple of reformers named B.M. Palmer and J.W. Alexander, a couple of ministers. And they wrote these words, and I knew I underlined it somewhere, so I found it there in the book. And it says, Neither state nor church could exist but of materials which the family affords. Hence it is historically true that the family expands through the tribe into the nation, and the church has thrice been founded within its bosom. Do you know what that means? The church was thrice founded within the bosom of one human family? Adam and Eve was the first family, right? Then Noah and his wife were not even told her name. Second family, the son's names we know. And the third family, of course, is Abraham and Sarah. So God only had to use one family to create the church. You know, this time of year, it's probably interesting to point out about the pilgrim colony. Now, the Pilgrim Colony, as you know, you know the history, and you know we all love to talk about such things. Um, they came over here 102 strong from, um, from Leiden in Holland. 
because they had left England, because they were persecuted out of England, because they were separatists, they didn't believe this. They didn't believe they had to obey the government. So they came out, they became a civil body politic, their words, on their own, and in the first year there was only something like 42 of them left. More than half of them died, right? Just so you know, they were all from a single congregation. That whole colony was born of a single congregation, a single congregation under uh, John Robinson, right? Their pastor in, in Leiden, Holland, and formerly in Scrooby, England. God can do a lot with a little. He only needed Abraham and Sarah. And by the end of Genesis, there's all these people and tribes. But he only needed Abraham and Sarah. He only needed Noah. He wiped everyone else out, right? He only needed Adam and Eve to start it. So uh, Palmer and Alexander make a great point. It's all about the sanctity of the family and passing down of righteousness from generation to generation. So the commentator rightly notes that governments are made up of men and men are sinners. That much we know. But the sins that men express in their official capacities of rulership are those that went unsuppressed on a much more basic level of human existence. So when Paul writes, render therefore to all their due, and then speaks of various aspects of respect and compliance, he says things like, pay taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. You know, when we speak badly of the president and someone uh, tells us not to do that because to have respect for the office, as much as we hate to hear it, they're right. The office deserves respect, more respect than the individual man in the office. That comes right from our own New Testament teaching. It seems to me that these basic points of honor have been broken at their inception. They should have been already learned. Every child should have learned this. Every parent somewhere in himself knew that and knew they were failing in that. God included at the outset of establishing laws and governments that a person must honor his mother and father. He didn't say only if you have good mother and father or your father doesn't have bad habits or whatever it might be. Honor your mother and your father. Again, honor their office. They may not be particularly a good, honorable person. You know, I read something uh, in World Magazine just this week. Margie and I always talk about our travels in World, but um, maybe you read it. There is a whole um, county in Mississippi where every child born this year was born to a single mother. Did you read that? And I'm sure there are other counties where there's 90% or 89%. Or... This whole concept, it's lost to us. Honor father and mother, it's like, who are they? Or who is he? It's gone to us. That's just something to cry over when you think about it. Make no mistake, all subsequent failures of honor to whom honor are due must have in some way broken down at their inception. You were not taught to honor anybody who was deserving of honor. Men tend to find out early in life that the authorities that exist 
between us are imperfect authorities. It's easy to find that out, right? The subsequent cynicism has already begun in us. Think of the first boss on the job that you despised in your heart and recoiled at any order that he gave. Oh, man. I'm going to tell you, you know why I started a business back in the 80s? I couldn't hold a job. (laughs) I couldn't take orders from people. I had no respect. You know, I looked at everybody as, if not stupid, at least more stupid than I was. And, uh, you know, it was a wrong way of thinking. But until I came to Christ, I couldn't unravel that. Somehow you don't think that's strange of me, that I think there's a lot of stupid people. Sometimes Somehow you're, you're okay with that. But I was very cynical about those. Just think of the first boss on the job that you despised. Um, or perhaps you've come to believe, and in some cases rightly, that you're the better person for the job. Have you ever, ever been that? I'm so much more qualified than this guy. You're smarter, you're more skilled, you're more suited in every way than the boss that God ordained for you to work under. Insurrection always begins in the heart. And it always comes out by noting the prevailing imperfections in the authority figure. So let me be the first to tell you, your parents aren't perfect. Neither were theirs. Your boss is a fallible, small, and incompetent. Shouldn't be big news. And if you, you were to ascend into their place, your, infect, your imperfections would soon and readily be exposed. And so the cycle of imperfect authorities goes on and on and on, right? Because what would we do? We'd justify ourselves, particularly those of us who are not saved. We think we're the gods of our own lives. We would th- say things like, yeah, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than him. And so when the objection arises with regard to the corruptions of government, such things can be traced to the corruptions of morality on a much more basic societal level. Agreed? So the corruptions of government, friends, are the corruptions of us all. And that's more true in democracies than anywhere else. Right? If you've got a corrupt king, you can't blame the people that didn't vote for him. But if you've got a corrupt nut in a high office... Right? You're partially to blame as a society. You know, democracy, if it does anything, it does one thing. We get what we deserve. We get as a nation what we ask for. Right? When someone says to you, he's your president too, that's true. And that's what Paul's saying. The overreach of government is the overreach of us all. The abuses committed by men are the very things that were not squelched in the child. And I would say that in this age, where we see democracy as God's great gift to human society, that democracies are those societies most directly involved with the corruptions of government. Most directly involved. In a democracy, we get the government that we deserve Our founding documents say it like it's a positive thing. It's good that we're the government of the people, for the people, and by the people, right? But the corruptions of government are also due to the fact that we're the government of the people, and for the people, and by the people. Because the people are corrupt, and so put corrupt governors into place in a democracy. Paul's not really talking specifically about democracies here, but he's talking by extension about every government on earth into which a Christian would be born again. 
Isn't that right? He doesn't make any exceptions. And if he was going to, I would imagine he'd point out the corruptions of the Roman government under which he was living and writing and was a citizen of, right? Christianity's most profound contribution to human society then is to do as the prophet told us to do. Malachi said, rear godly offspring. That really is the best thing you can do. The evangelist is right. Just get them all saved and you'll fix the land. (laughs) And so I would ask you today, what is the first order of God to man to go forth and multiply? Or rather, what good is the first order of God to man to go forth and multiply if his later command, rear godly offspring, offspring, is not accomplished? Go forth and multiply. Just have kids all over the place. See, that's what's happening, but they don't get the other part. Rear godly offspring. Or Deuteronomy 6. Teach them these things when they rise up, when they lie down, when they walk by the way. Write them on the lintels and and doorposts of your homes, put them on your foreheads, you know, on the hems of your garment. Teach your kids these things. Don't just put them out there. Oh, follow your heart. Friends, it makes me moan when I hear the corruptions in the education system. You're preparing a government. Where did all those bad ideas come from? You know... Karen and I graduated from college together, and we get the alumni magazine. And it's always this really nice four-color, you know, glossy page thing of all the wonderful things that people are doing and all the wonderful donors, because a lot of their people got wealthy and were able to donate sums of money. All I can tell you is I remember one particular magazine cover when it came. We get two because we're both graduates. So it comes, and there's a picture of a fishbowl with a single goldfish in the bowl. But through the bowl, you can see somebody's face. So do you know how it would look? You know, you see like a young person's face through the bowl. And the story about the fishbowl was that, um, thank heaven, that somebody gave a million dollars to study what makes that fish have sexually desire to reproduce. That's what they were celebrating. And I'm like, with all the things to spend money on, what makes a guppy horny is something that I have to, have to contribute to? You've got to be kidding me. Who cares? Whatever, it was all uptight because I said horny from the pulpit. Sorry. It was a horny, horn, I meant a horned uh, fish. But, um, I mean, it was so ridiculous, I said... Who could give to this and designated that million dollars for that purpose? So we could see that young, wonderful face just being filled with the knowledge of the sex life of the guppy. Friends, this is where we are. And I'm talking about a revered institution here. So I moan with all of us, when I see the corrosive ideas of today's Ivy League, and I've said this for many years, um, but how did such things come about in institutions that still bear engravings in stone over their public archways that say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Right? 
Someone was not paying attention at a very basic level of existence. Yeah, you, can you imagine today's communist Ivy Leaguer walking through there going, what does that mean? What idiot wrote that? How about the idiot whose name the college bears? That's who. I suggest to you that it's the most fundamental level of government that has caused the most extensive problems and that the trouble must be traced to the front door of the human family. And so Paul may say, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. It's um, self-explanatory, isn't it? You bring judgment on yourself. Now, I want to deal with a, one linguistic uh, situation here that's been brought to my attention by one of you. To resist legitimate, that is, God-ordained authority, is the very definition of contempt of court, right? You've heard of contempt of court. If you speak up again, I'll hold you in contempt. You don't get to stand against the judge, right? So if you stand against the authority, that's the very uh, definition of contempt of court. And you get thrown into prison or fined or something for speaking out of order, right? And a penalty must be paid. Now, for those of you who read the King James Version, it's, I've been made aware that a much harsher term has been applied. The word judgment is rendered damnation. And so the verse would say, those who resist will bring damnation on themselves. All right? Now, that was written in the King James Version some you know, 400 years ago. So I had to go to the word, to the Greek lexicon, to figure out why they use that word and why we wouldn't use that word today. Um, Very simply, I can say at the outset, is being in contempt of court is, you don't forfeit your salvation. You're not going to be damned because you went against an earthly judge. It's a sin like any other sin. And by the way, you're not under the law anymore. A particular sin does not cancel out your salvation. It's covered. That's not the standard by which you are ultimately judged. But while you're here temporarily, you are judged by it. And Paul is saying you're under condemnation of the judge. So the Greek word comes from the word krima, and it refers to a decision passed on the faults of others. The lexicon also says, for its general significance, see condemnation. And I thought, well, then damnation's not that far off. But friends, damnation and condemnation are two different things. Um, and so I went to look, and the word is katagenosko, which means um, to know by experience. Hence, to think ill of is to condemn. So damnation in the King James is the wrong word. You're not sent to damnation for going against the authority, but you do come under his condemnation, which is his judgment against you in this particular case. You follow me? Um, And I hope that helps. But let's not forget the teaching from Romans 3 that says, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. In other words, we see one word and it troubles us over here. It doesn't cancel out 12 chapters teaching us on salvation. You follow me? So we want to be careful about ever drawing doctrine from, uh, from one verse, much less one word. All right? And then we read from Romans 8, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and death. Ultimately, these laws and lawyers and imperfect governors are not our judges. 
ultimately, right? We've already been judged by the perfect judge and declared not guilty by the substitutionary payment of our Lord. And so Paul wrote, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. So the law doesn't do everything. The law can't get you into heaven and it can't get you out. You follow me? But while you're here, the application is you walk in honor of those who to whom honor is due. You get the distinction? This isn't an eternal teaching here. This is a temporal teaching. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So to rephrase the verse, we could simply say those who resist will bring legal censure upon themselves. And you may get a fine or time imprisoned. In prison, but you cannot be damned by an imperfect authority of man. You follow? Now, in a nation of laws, the severity of the censure will be in proportion to the severity of the fence, that is, the resistance to the law. Whatever you may think of the powers that be, you risk legal censure for breaking existing law, wherever you are. There are worse governments than ours, believe me. So, I mean, you could be in another country and, uh, and break a law, and you've got to deal with that nation's censure of the breaking of that law. Now, I've known Christians in the past who refused to pay taxes. Have you known any of these? And they were convincing me that paying taxes were wrong. They were very, uh, you know, influential. They, they, they knew how to, you know, go through the scriptures and show that you shouldn't do these things. And... <clears throat> I can also say that though they believed themselves to be right and they were able to show some version of biblical evidence that paying taxes to support on biblical programs should conscientiously exempt, exempt them from paying taxes. But I can tell you, they were still forced by the authority to pay. Now, I have no doubt but that I could produce several government programs that, in my estimation and in my reading of Scripture, should not be subsidized by citizens who look to a higher authority, authority, namely God himself. And I may hold then, or I may then withhold my payment, not wishing to take part in funding evil against my own conscience. However, I will still be forced to pay with my money or my freedom in the final analysis. It's a losing battle when you fight this battle, and you're fighting it against God. That, too, is the choice of the conscientious objector. You know, there's certain things you can exempt from. I have not been favor in favor of a war since World War II, and I wasn't alive then. Our nation has neither declared war nor won one since World War II. All right? I was... Actually, I, I take that back. I was okay with the... The initial act against Afghanistan, who, who um, you know, took down the buildings in New York and other places. It was a direct attack by people who were living there at Bora Bora at the time, you remember. And I was for, let's go in. I wasn't for, let's go in there and stay there for an eternity. I never understood that kind of thing. And I always told, I had three boys, and they all flirted at one point with going into the military. And I counseled them not to. And I counseled them not to because they would, 
it would be so pronounced as to how much against their conscience they would have to live from day to day because of all these things, these extraneous skirmishes. That does not make me not a patriot or not have respect for military, of great respect. But I don't have to opt in. If I was breaking the law by not opting in, I would have opted in. I applied for the draft, but they, it was too late, the Vietnam era. They didn't take me. I didn't want to go. I was against it. So you can make these decisions. You don't always have to opt in to being, because then you're under a whole other set of laws by guys that just have to say, because I said so, right? But having said all that, the divine mandate still stands, regardless of the powerless citizen and in accordance with the will of the imperfect authority ruling over us. Verse 3 says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. It doesn't always feel that way. Doesn't always feel like the good law abiding citizens get the best treatment, does it? But that is God's premise for putting the law and government in place in the first place. So let's consider for the moment that the apostle is teaching on law and government in general. So we presume that he's concerned with secular governments and not with the theocracy of Israel. Or what we would call the ecclesiocracy of the medieval age when the Roman Catholic Church and the state were one and the same. Friends, in 1095, the first crusade, which was a great march and war to take back the Holy Land from the infidel, was a war declared by Pope Urban II. The man in charge of the church was in charge of the state. Now, there's nothing of that in Scripture, right? There's nothing of the connection of church and state to that extent. In the Second Crusade, Pope Eugenius III in 1146 declared war in the Holy Land and also changed doctrine a little. You always say the Catholic Church hid the gospel from us. Just signing up for that war, you went straight to heaven. In the first one, you went straight to heaven. If you died and became a martyr, you went straight to heaven. That was your indulgence. You know, think Luther and all of this. So it was, there were some misunderstandings in the past of how we were to follow this mandate. We are not under the theocracy of Israel, and we are not under an ecclesiocracy of the Roman church. But it took centuries for the church to work this out. And I would love to do some of the history on that. But it's a principle of God's governance in general to put a limit on the prevailing evils of falling, fallen human beings. It's God's good and common grace to think of his people and their welfare. But think of this. Why did God put government in place? To protect his people? No. To protect all people. God has not given up on the unbeliever yet. Let's not forget that he makes his rain fall on the just and on the unjust, and the sun to shine on the just and on the unjust. For the time being... We exist side by side, elect and unelect, in the kingdom of God. And God has not abandoned those who have abandoned him. Just because you hate God doesn't mean he hates you yet. There'll come a time when God will deliver evil for evil. But for the time being, he is just to the unjust. He's charitable to the uncharitable. 
He's loving to the unloving and he's merciful to the unmerciful, those that are undeserving. And government's a great equalizer of rights and privileges and protections and properties. So it's a gift to all of mankind that God limits evil by imposing government, even though it's imperfect. For the time being, in the mercy of God, he still loves them who love him not. In the end, this lack of reciprocity in the form of thanksgiving will be held against them. Why do I say that? Well, you can't really do anything about the fact that God's blessed you with all these blessings except get on your knees and thank him. You can't pay him back, right? But for now, God would have the society of men, saved and unsaved, live together in peace and relative lawlessness. And so government is a blanket gift for all men. What's that? I said government. Right. Oh, relative lawfulness, I see. God would have the society of men saved and unsaved live together in peace and relative law- lawfulness. What did I say? Lawlessness? Okay. Let's not forget that God put a level of... You know, I'll listen to the tape later and I'll be so mad that if you didn't correct me, so I'm glad you did. Let's not forget that God put a level of highest spiritual understanding in the hearts of all men. In other words, people already know this somewhere in themselves. And the Bible says it. John wrote this of Christ. That was the true light which gave light to every man coming into the world. There's something of God that's in every man. I submit to you that one of those things is lawful government. From, the, from Romans chapter 1, he said, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. There's something in us where we recognize that there is a sovereign God over us. We rebel against it, but it's in there initially. And he said, that's, therefore, they're without excuse, because although, listen to this, they knew God... They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Boy, are we seeing that today. The futility of thought today is astounding. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Friends, people just didn't become stupid, you know. God put that on them as a, as a punishment. God gave them up to vile passions. Read further in Romans 1. So men were good enough to be governed, but not good enough to be saved. Government couldn't get you saved. There's enough God-given light in every person in the world to recognize fundamental right and wrong. Most people know it's wrong to kill, it's wrong to steal. That's why they do it in the dark, right? They do it in the dark. They don't come to the light because the deeds are evil. Lest they come to the light, their deeds would be exposed, John 3, right? And so the Lord... God is gracious to offer the gift of lawful government to all men, regardless of their spiritual standing before him. It's a gift to mankind and to society, and it benefits God and the kingdom because it curtails evil to some extent. One of the most celebrated examples of law, apart from the inspiration of God, is the ancient Code of Hammurabi. Anybody heard of the Code of Hammurabi? It's often brought up as a similar code to what Moses wrote in the Ten Commandments, although the Code of Hammurabi is much more extensive 
and it's much more ancient than Moses' code. Hammurabi was the sixth king of Babylon, and the steel, the S-T-E-L-E, you ever see those things they excavate? They used to put it on a steel or a stell, they called it, and they would write, and you heard of Rosetta Stone, where it has the three languages on the three sides of the steel. Well, it's found. It's actually in the Louvre Museum. You can go see the Code of Hammurabi. Um, funny, we were there a couple years ago. I don't think I saw the Code of It's a gigantic museum, but I don't think I saw it. But um, in it, it lists songs and poems and laws and penalties for lawbreakers of all sorts. And guess what's on there? Things like, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. You didn't have to be ordained by God to know those were wrong things. Everyone knew those were wrong things. They're on an ancient code of a, uh, an ancient pagan people. But if they wanted to protect society, they couldn't let people do whatever they want. They had to be some kind of imposed restrictions on them. <clears throat> and so it's not unlike the law of Moses. It contains criminal law, family law, property law, commercial law. Right? You know how the law of Moses goes. If your ox gores somebody, then such and such has to happen. Right? Um, or if he tramples their field and ruins their field. You know, it's about property. It's about all forms of law. And so was the Code of Hammurabi. And it just shows that God, was, God always gave government uh, as a gift to human society. Law and government are God's gift to all men, regardless of their inspired devotion to the one true God. In his mercy, it's God's will that all men should have the opportunity to live in peace and in some measure of prosperity and bodily protection and recompense from heinous crime. Friends, there's no point being rich if there's no protection against being robbed. There's to live in fear without an intervening uh, agency, a police force or something to protect you. It's a horrible situation. So it's in the sense that nations who do not possess God's written law have yet been granted access to the common grace of God that reveals fundamental right and wrong. You know, it's interesting in this age of defund the police, you know what they said on the West Coast, abolish the police. You know, because why? Because the police are imperfect and you can readily see that. But we go right to abolish. This is what Paul is warning us not to do. That's insanity. Yes, you're imperfect. You're sinful before God. That's not going to be made right in this life. But for the time being, by the grace of God, he's put agencies in life to uh, protect us and to keep the general public safe so that civilization can happen. I'm one that I still think civilization is a good thing. So it's in the sense that nations who do not possess God's written law have yet been granted access to the common grace the grace of God that reveals fundamental right and wrong. Romans again. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves. You see what I mean? It's, and then he goes on, he says, who show the work of the law written on their hearts. He's talking about unbelievers. Their conscience also bearing witness. In other words, they are convinced that what God wrote on their hearts as to what right and wrong is and what's being enforced in their society is really true. Their conscience is telling them that. And so their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them 
in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. What he means by that is they all know right and wrong. But those who do wrong and say it's right, those secrets are going to be revealed to God and you'll not escape his judgment because he put that knowledge in you to respect that agency. All right? It's in this sense and with these thoughts in mind that Paul may say that those who do good works need not fear retribution from law enforcement and that those who do not do what is right and lawful should fear the authorities. And that's the same for all men of all societies societies throughout all civilizations. It is God's will for rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil. For he is God's minister to you for good. The cop on the street is a minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Now, swords have gone out of style. I think you know what he means, right? For he is God's minister and avenger. See, you're not to avenge yourself, he said at the end of Romans 12, but there is an avenger out there. He's God's avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So civilizations of every sort have a vested interest in conducting law-abiding societies. The apostle instructed us in verse twelve ten, do not avenge yourselves. We talked about vigilantism last week. It's very romantic, but it's very evil. It's very evil. Um, and here he tells us why. It's because there's a due process in meeting out justice in society so long as there is legitimate authority prevailing. You can't take away the process and still have the justice. The vigilante is as evil and as unlawful as the person he's avenging or avenging from. Apart from the due process, there's no process at all. And when the taking of life is at issue for an offense committed and condemned, It is within the power of the enforcement agency to administer justice even to the taking of a life. States are allowed to take life. Individuals are not. Now, when it comes to capital punishment, I've been asked in the past, Pastor, does God allow capital punishment? And I always say, no, that's a a wrong way of looking at it. God demands capital punishment in capital crimes. And that's the Lord's justice. And that's what he's talking about here. He does not bear the sword in vain. He is to execute wrath. He's not talking about a spanking. Our Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you to apply these teachings deep in our hearts and our understanding, O Lord, that we might move on in a greater understanding and appreciation of your unfolding word and your teaching to us by the Holy Spirit and by the written word, we pray In Jesus' name, amen.